Our story today starts with a woman named Susie. In 1975, Susie was about 24 years old, and right out of university, she landed a job at the Beirut National Museum. I studied archaeology. In fact, I, have, I was also, uh, I had a degree in uh, political sciences. This is Susie, Susie Hakimia. But I mean, it seems that fate brought me <laughs> to, to the Department of Antiquities. There was a vacancy. And when she started working at the National Museum in Beirut, she joined a team of older, mostly male, archaeologists who were a little confused about why she was there. I remember when I came, one of the archaeologists said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. If you give me the work, I will, I mean, when they will give me what I have to do. And I, in a way, I, they found it very funny to have somebody very, very young. Her boss at the time was this well-known, respected Lebanese archaeologist named Maurice Shiheb. Maurice had earned the title of the father of Lebanese archaeology because in the early 20th century in Lebanon, he had been responsible for a bunch of important excavations. He was kind of a big deal. And Susie quickly learned that her boss didn't like going by Maurice Shehab. If you don't call him Emir, he wouldn't be happy. But instead, he insisted on being called Emir Maurice Shehab or Prince Maurice Shehab. He was very picky. And he was uh, very serious. And, you know, we were, we were all afraid of you know, to be always on the level. You had to be always doing the best that you can do. And so he was not an easygoing person, for sure. In fact, because he was, he was so passionate about his work. So he couldn't understand if you were somebody who was very commodity in French, tied. You had to be also passionate like him. It meant he wasn't always an easy person to work with. But after the Lebanese Civil War started in 1975, the year Susie started working at the Beirut National Museum, none of these workplace dynamics really mattered anymore. Because when the war began, everything changed. I am, how do you say, I'm an anxious person. So I lived the war in, in all its sadness and, uh, and uh, difficulties. Uh, I stopped everything as, as if my life stopped. When we hear stories of war, there's trauma, destruction, and unfortunately, in many parts of the Arab world and the world in general, really, much of our historical artifacts and monuments become collateral damage. And in the 15 years that followed, that was the Lebanese Civil War, there was tragically a lot of collateral damage. But there was also something else happening, something kind of extraordinary. Inside the walls of the Beirut Museum, where artifacts more than 2,000 and 3,000 years old were on display, Susie, Emir Maurice, and their colleagues were devising a plan to preserve these precious exhibits. Today on Kerning Cultures, when so much of a city fell to war, the National Museum that somehow shielded itself, and the history it was able to protect inside its walls. I'm Hibba Fisher, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Stories from the Middle East and the spaces in between. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination the streets lost culture. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Our story today comes from producer Alex Atek. 
There was no grand opening for the National Museum of Beirut. Officially, it opened on March 25th, 1942, but the building had already been there for five years by that point. Getting the showcases delivered from Paris kept getting delayed. Then there was World War II and the Battle of Beirut in 1941, which meant that the founding committee couldn't open it until years after they'd hoped to. But eventually, Beirut got its museum, this grand building that looks exactly how you would imagine a museum to look, six tall pillars out front with a big staircase leading up to them, a central atrium room for all of the exhibits, balconies overlooking that atrium, glass ceilings. I could carry on describing what the museum looks like. I could tell you about some of the things inside it, its famous um, collection of Arab jewels or its Phoenician frescoes. A lot of the things in that main room are a very big deal to historians, but me just listing them off like this gets boring quickly. So I think it helps to imagine this guy called Dr. Reinhard G. Lehmann sitting behind his desk um, in a city called Mainz, which is in Germany. He's a lecturer in ancient North Semitic languages and a specialist in Phoenician scripts. The Phoenicians, by the way, were an ancient civilization who lived in the kind of Lebanon, Syria, Palestine area, um, roughly between two and three thousand years ago. So, uh, I mean, how did you get into uh, how did you get interested in Phoenician uh, in the first place? In Phoenician. The recording is a bit scratchy. Um, I spoke to him over the phone from Germany. My interest in Phoenician started in the late uh, in the late nineties. Um, it was simply curiosity, nothing more. Dr. Lehman found himself at the National Museum of Beirut because of this one sarcophagus which is on display there, and specifically this one sentence carved into the side of it that he was trying to translate into English. In English, it's about 50 words long, but it took him about a year to get the translation right. I was there in 2003, and the museum was also uh, was always open for the public, and so I have I, I could only work there before it was open for the public. So in the very very early morning, <laughs> so every morning I got up and at five o'clock, and so to be at the museum at six o'clock, and work there until ten o'clock when it opened to the public, and then I had to do other things. So that was more than one year for for essentially one sentence. It sounds crazy, I know. Here's what it says. Now, if a king among kings and a governor among governors and a commander of an army should come up against Byblos, and when he then uncovers this coffin, may the spectre of his judiciary be stripped off, may the throne of his kingdom be overturned, and may peace and quiet flee from Byblos. The reason I'm telling you about all this is because this line is carved into the side of a sarcophagus from around 1000 BC, which now sits in the National Museum of Beirut. A sarcophagus, by the way, is an ancient stone coffin. This one is the final resting place of King Ahram, who we think was a Phoenician king. Uh, I say we think because there's speculation among a couple of scholars around whether or not he even existed, but that's a rabbit hole we don't have time for here. The reason I think this is so interesting is because it's the oldest extensive example of Phoenician writing that we've got. And the Phoenician alphabet is the root of many of the alphabets humans write with today, so Arabic, Latin, Greek. Imagine this 50-word paragraph like the deepest root of a tree, and everything we write and read with today as a branch somewhere much, much further up. This is Phoenician standard script from the 12th century, or 12th, 11th, 10th century BC, spread out in the Mediterranean. All these scripts, you can say all pure alphabet scripts of the world nowadays, are direct or indirect followers of the uh, old Phoenician standard, what we call Phoenician standard. Wow, that's crazy, isn't it? It is crazy, indeed. 
By the time he'd translated that sentence, the sarcophagus had survived 15 years of war. The reason you can walk into the Beirut National Museum and see it at all now is because of this small group of museum staff who, as soon as the war came to the museum's front door and threatened its destruction, baked up what was then a radical plan to save the museum's artefacts, to spread lies and rumours and to risk their lives to keep them safe. I think uh, between uh, the 40s and the 70s, just before the civil war broke, uh, the National Museum knew its uh, golden age. A lot of people were coming, a lot of visitors, a lot of tourists, and people were very much interested in, this, uh, in the history of this newly born uh, uh, country. This is Anne-Marie Afish. Yes, that's me. I've been working uh, at the National Museum of Beirut since 1994, uh, almost in antiquity myself. She used to be the curator of the National Museum. Now she's the director general of the Council of Museums in Lebanon. Anyway, we started our interview talking about the museum's early history. Lebanon became independent from French rule in 1943, and part of the idea behind the museum was to celebrate this new era in Lebanon's national identity. It was the, the creation of a place that could represent, that could collect, that could uh, uh, show the people the history of Lebanon. So it was created specifically, specifically for this intention of doing a national museum to enhance the national identity of a people and of a country. Which is why they put Maurice Shahab, this guy who was known as Lebanon's father of archaeology, in charge. I think he gave a lot during these golden ages. He was able to open a museum that was at an international level. Of course, uh, because of the beautiful artifacts and so important discoveries, but also because of his personal touch. He even lived in the museum. Um, the room Anne-Marie was in when I interviewed her used to be part of his living quarters. It used to be uh, the bedroom uh, of one of his son. Uh, so uh, so it's, uh, it's very touching to know that we are living and the offices today are in his own house. By 1975, after 35 years as the museum's director, Maurice was 71. And at the start of that year, they were preparing for a big international glass history exhibition in the museum. But in April that year, 1975, the war in Lebanon started. This was once the richest part of the richest city in the Middle East. Now it's the front line of the war in the Lebanon. Buildings where last year the money makers of the Western world exchanged their millions are now the barricades of Beirut. The war has ruined a country and destroyed a nation. And as the situation got worse, Beirut as a city was divided into two sides, and the road the museum was on, Damascus Street, was the road that marked the division. It was called the Green Line at the time that was dividing two parts of Beirut East and West. This was a very difficult place to cross. In fact, the museum had this bad experience to be in a place where it shouldn't be. This is Susie Hakamian from the start of the episode. Again, she's the one who started working for the museum when she was 24. The museum this was not the target of the, the war or the violence, but I mean what we call collateral uh, damages. Uh, the museum was at this uh, crossing point where the, the, the battle used to take place. And she told us that a few months after the war started, the roads around it were fully deserted, full of broken cars and empty pavements. At a certain point, the road became overgrown with trees because so little people used it. It was a, a no man's land. 
It was a no man's land. Susie lived with her family um, in a house that her grandfather had built on the other side of town from the museum. So every day she'd get in a shared taxi, which would take her on this elaborate route to work. They couldn't go in through the museum's main entrance. Um, it was too exposed to the militias that kept watch over the museum crossing. So the taxi would drop her off around the back. So it was a nightmare to go to the work in the morning because sometimes we had chilling all or chilling all the night. So I had to go and, and find which streets were more secure, which were not secure. For me, it was a nightmare. Susie said at first that her friends and family told her not to worry, uh, that the fighting wouldn't last more than a few months and they'd be back to normal soon. So most days, the small museum team of around six or seven people showed up at work anyway. But as we know, um, the fighting didn't stop. The war lasted 15 years, and after those initial few months ended and the fighting kept getting worse, the museum team had just realised that they needed to start taking more serious measures to protect their artefacts. At first, Maurice assigned the staff to start archiving things, taking a proper inventory of what they had. Susie was put in charge of the books. She didn't really know what she was doing. Um, This was her first job and she had no previous experience. But she showed up and that was what was important. He was able very quickly at the beginning of 1975, the beginning of uh, the Civil War, to uh, remove uh, the small objects that were displayed on the first floor in the showcases of the first floor of the museum. And these objects were carefully put in boxes uh, that were hidden in the basement of the National Museum. Basically, anything they could carry down to the museum with their bare hands, they did. And once it was down there, they built these kind of protective walls out of wood and sandbags all around them. In fact, they succeeded. They did what is a miracle also, is to, to bring all these objects, hide them in the basement, close the basement, wall the basement. To try and deter people from looting the place, the museum team spread a rumour that everything had been shipped off to Switzerland at the beginning of the war, that there was nothing left of any value inside the museum. They thought that they went to Switzerland. You know, in fact, maybe they spread this news saying that the, the objects were safe. They were at the central bank and the, and the safe. But I mean, everything was there. This is actually quite a common tactic for museums and galleries during wartime. In World War II, the National Gallery in London transferred about 2,000 of their paintings to a remote coal mine in Wales. The Louvre in Paris moved 3,500 paintings out of the museum and into private houses and castles around France to hide them from the Nazis. But these are all relatively small, um, easy-to-transport objects. The Beirut Museum had much bigger pieces to deal with. We had huge objects, uh, many tons, uh, the sarcophagi, the uh, statues, uh, altars, mosaics on the floor and all the walls. So this was very uh, difficult to move, of course. The team couldn't move them out of the museum or drag them down to the basement. There wasn't enough time between the fighting to arrange for anything like that. And they couldn't exactly sneak them out through a back door. I mean, where do you want to go with the sarcophagus of four tons in a, in a country or in a town which is full of bombs and shelling? I mean, you have also to be practical. Somebody said, oh, why didn't they take them? Where, where to go with your, 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 your sarcophagi? They protected them, they left them, they kept them in the museum, and but they protected them with the cement. So uh, the big objects uh, Maurice Schaap could not move or uh, just uh, uh, safeguard in another, in a different uh, way. He was able to find a fantastic solution, actually. He decided at the time where it was more uh, quiet, uh, he decided to build 
around each and every object, the big objects, he couldn't move, uh, walls, and that he, uh, after uh, he sealed with cement. The museum team um, basically constructed these concrete tombs around the bigger objects. They started with like a wooden frame, uh, padded that out with sandbags, and then poured concrete into a kind of outer shell. It wasn't perfect, but at least this way, if they were hit by bullets or if the museum was heavily shelled, they'd have a layer of protection. Can you kind of describe what they looked like, like the encasings? They're like blocks, square blocks. Come on, they're rectangular, but you can use the word that you want. I mean, it depended. I mean, in fact, it reflected the size of the objects that you were covering. For for the sarcophagus of Ahiram, you would say you have four meter by two meters. Uh, for the rest, uh, they sometimes brought together uh, two columns plus a statue or and, and build a, a kind of a house around it. But Susie told me that this really was a last resort. The idea of covering them with cement must have been something not very easy as a, as a decision to be made. The cement is the most uh, biggest enemy of, of archaeology. She said that an archaeologist's job is to take the artifacts out of the ground, not to cover them back up. I mean, for, for us, uh, cement is like uh, what you are going to seal again, history. And in fact, it was also dangerous for the objects. It was not that safe, but I mean, it it happened happily that to be the, the best way to protect them. And as the situation in Lebanon carried on deteriorating, the National Museum was taken over by varying militias. At night, armed men slept on the floor of the Grand Atrium, lying next to Lebanon's most important ancient history, sheltered in their concrete casings. And outside, the museum crossing became more and more dangerous. We didn't enter the museum. I mean, because, I mean, we had a lot of militiamen inside and it was, you know, the, the dark, the dark side of, of the, the whole thing. The museum was, was living its own life at that moment. Around the time of the Israeli invasion in 1982, the staff stopped coming to work at the museum. They'd done what they could to protect what was inside of it and the museum itself was too dangerous to work in. That same year, 1982, Maurice Shahab and his family moved to Paris where they lived until the end of the 80s until the end of the Lebanese war. The war ended, at least in theory, with the Taif Agreement in 1990. And when it did, life in Lebanon began a slow journey back to a new normal. So when you first came back in the 90s, um, if you were to stand outside the front of the museum, could you describe what it looked like? Terrible. It looked terrible. Actually, everything looked terrible. Uh, the whole country was completely destroyed. Um, the uh, the outside facade was uh, completely damaged, completely destroyed. Uh, the stairs, you know, uh, the staircase was also in, uh, in very bad shape. Inside the museum, doors and windows and uh, ceiling, uh, all the walls were, were burned, uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of dirt everywhere, a lot of dust. What shall I say? It was a terrible sight. It was a mess. I mean, everything was broken. The walls had to be rebuilt. The wood, as I said, the windows, the ceilings, all the, the, the old showcases were thrown away because, I mean, they were broken. The shells were coming inside the museum at the end. So they, they, they broke everything. In November 1993, the museum opened for 10 days to raise money for its reconstruction. Around 20,000 people went on tours of the burned, leaking, windowless building, there was no electricity, but a giant shell hole in the roof let in enough sunlight for people to see the exhibition. 
a small collection of photographs of Lebanon before the war. One woman came up to Susie and told her, I didn't even know that this building was a museum. You know, the museum at a certain moment didn't have any, any meaning for people. It, it didn't have the meaning of a place, a museum. It was a crossing line. It was a demarcation line. Anne-Marie started working for the museum in 1994, um, four years after the war ended. And it was her job to bring it back to the state it was in, back to being a proper functioning museum. So uh, when we entered the museum in the early 90s, we discovered uh, like a surrealistic exhibition, I must say, uh, all blocks of cement everywhere in the ground floor of the National Museum. And we were not sure about the content. So in 1995, um, Anne-Marie, Susie and the rest of the museum team, they began work to restore the exterior of the building. We had also to rebuild the walls and close the doors of the museum. I mean, you don't uh, take off the cement before all your your house is, uh, is secure and safe. And so this was the first job was to rebuild the walls. And so they did the, the ceilings. There were there was there were the whole big holes in the ceiling. So it was raining inside the museum. I mean, you can imagine that it was in French. You would say a gruyere. It's like a, a cheese, you know, full of holes. And uh, the columns were completely eaten by, by, by the, the shells. But when they did the rebuild, um, Susie told me that they wanted to keep the architecture of the building more or less the same. They didn't change it. And this was very important. I find the building wonderful. And in 1996, we had the possibility to start breaking these cement blocks. That's the cement blocks that were protecting the large artefacts. To open them back up, they brought in a team of workers with crowbars, chisels and hammers. The museum team stood around watching as they opened up the artefacts that they'd sealed away in these concrete tombs 15 years earlier. It's like a book, as if you were opening the two parts of the book and suddenly something appears in the light. And it was a, these were really intense moments. I must say that this is a moment of uh, emotion. You can't imagine the very tiny, small team standing outside and standing around these uh, blocks and just uh, waiting to check uh, what we were going to discover uh, within these blocks and what artifacts was here protected for more than 15 years. And in fact, I tell you, it was, these were very, very happy moments. But there was one person missing. Maurice Shahab had died a year earlier, on December 22nd, 1994. He was 89. I'm sorry to say that he passed away uh, and he, he didn't uh, realise uh, what we were doing. He, he was not here an, anymore. When he built the concrete tombs around the museum's artefacts, the artefacts that had defined his career and his life since he was a young man, it was the last time that he ever saw them. Today, the Beirut Museum is fully open again, and that's in large part because of Maurice, Susie, and their other colleagues' work. If they hadn't carried on showing up to work in the 70s and 80s, it's likely that much of the artifacts in the museum would have been destroyed. But when we were producing this story, um, we kept coming back to this question of, like, how many people know about this story, and how many people know about how much it took just to keep the lights on in this building? And how many people have actually been? I myself had lived in Beirut for about a year and a half before I visited it. My colleague Tamara has never been. So last week, Tamara took a walk around Badaro, that's the neighbourhood that the museum is in, to ask people if they'd visited it. I haven't. Why? Because I didn't know we had one. Okay, that's <laughs> yeah. good. There we go. Uh, 
Where is it? No, actually, I haven't. Did you know it existed? Yeah, I did. Okay. I always hear Matav, 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 but like I, I've never been honest here. Um, I don't remember, honestly. I thought I would remember, but no, I don't remember. So probably not? Probably not. Which kept me coming back to another question, which was like, why does it matter? Like, what purpose does keeping 3,000-year-old artifacts in a museum serve for us as people who are alive in society today? I was trying, I guess, to understand Maurice and Anne-Marie's and Susie's drive or motivation for all of their work. I asked everybody this, but I think Dr. Lehman's answer resonated the most. Yeah, that's a question I'm often asked. And yes, it's nothing which really contributes to uh, our being here today and uh, it's no pro uh, profession that feeds someone or heals someone and so on but to know about how people lived and thought 2,000 years ago or, or 3,000 years ago tells us something about what it means to be a human being I think history and ancient history and history of different cultures and different languages and old dead, so-called dead languages makes us a little bit more humble today. That's my idea about doing that. This episode was produced by Alex Atak with editorial support from Dana Balut, Tamara Rasamni, and me, Hiba Fisher. Sound design by Mohamed Khezat and fact-checking by Zena Duedor. Nicole Bezorgmir helped us record Anne-Marie's interview in Beirut. And thank you also to Susie Hakimia, Anne-Marie Afesh, and Dr. Reinhard Lehmann for speaking to us for this story. And I should say, we tried to find and reach out to Maurice Shahab's family for this story, but we just couldn't find any leads to them. Another thing... We only used a little bit of Dr. Lehman's tape in this story, but I spoke to him for about an hour and a half, and he told me loads more fascinating stuff about the Phoenician alphabet and the sarcophagus of Ahram uh, that we just couldn't fit into the episode. So I'll be sharing some of those stories um, along with photos of the Beirut Museum throughout the years on our Instagram this week. Follow us there if you don't already. It's at Curling Cultures. Another thing is we're hosting this special discussion about this episode um, on Podacy.fm, which is an online community of podcast lovers. You can ask me anything about the episode, um, anything about how we produced it, how we researched it, uh, anything else about Dr. Lehman's research, about Anne-Marie, about Susie, about the story in general. Uh, basically, any questions you have, I'll be answering them until December 21st. So to join the conversation, uh, click the link down in our show notes and I'll see you there. And lastly, thank you to all of our new patrons supporting us this month. Branka, Laura, Lauren, and Alex, you are helping to make the production of these stories possible. Thank you. If you're loving KC and want to help support us, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash kerningcultures, or just click the link in this episode's description. Tiers start at $1 a month and include great perks, including our eternal love. Thanks for listening. Until next time. 